0: Cool, let's, let's go. let this party on the road. Um, so I've got food in my mouth, which is not good when I'm Yeah, I, I was
1: wondering what that sound was. So there let, is. Give
0: me give me one second, I'll, I'll wash out
1: my mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so seriously, we take this podcast. Uh, host actually washes out his mouth before he comes on to make sure nothing but pure free market could... Well,
0: there's the opening banter for for us. <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go, we're sort of...
0: welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addison Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and ASI fellow and super forecaster at Good Judgment Inc., Jonathan Kitson. Uh, this week we're going to be discussing the EU's vaccine drama, the gainstop, controversy and super forecasting. The European Union has been widely condemned in Britain this week after introducing a vaccine export control system. But before we get on to this latest drama across the ditch, Jonathan, as the co-author of our Worth a Shot paper and someone who's been keeping an extremely close eye on the UK's vaccine rollout, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an update on on how you think the government's going.
2: So the UK is doing very, very well at the moment. Uh, It's massively outperforming its closest neighbours. Um, I think we've we've vaccinated just over fourteen percent of the population at the moment. Uh, if you compare that to the total inv- uh, people number of vac- total people vaccinated in the EU, um, as an average, I think there are about two, maybe three percent. So we're absolutely barnstorming ahead. Um, we had n- over nine hundred thousand vaccinations over the weekend, which is uh, particularly good. Um, it seems to be. You know, we're still a little bit behind Israel, who's still absolutely in the lead with nearly 50%. I think they've actually got over 50% of their population done now. Um, Hmm. Yeah, it's it's going relatively well, actually. Yeah, and I think there's been some
0: good news in terms of vaccinating the over 70s, at least half of them so far, as well as offering vaccinations to, I think, almost all care homes. Uh, So it seems like, unlike usual, we actually have something to say the government's done a good job about.
2: Yeah, it's it. the The planning side has been a has been very interesting because the the actual vaccine program uh, run, so the actual vaccine task force who bought the bought the vaccines and were responsible for that were not run out of the NHS or Public Health England. It was actually run out of bays. Um, so they didn't. Kate Kate Bingham, of course, who, who's done a fantastic job, was not under um she hasn't hasn't got a health background and that seems to have been a real advantage actually she's got a venture capital uh background she understands that uh i think she understood that she needed to get a sort of a basket of different vaccines in case some failed um we have done yeah we've we've done extremely well on on that um i was a little i'm still we're still in, in our worth of shot paper we were saying we we really wanted to aim high, get up to about six million doses a week um with six hundred thousand uh, nearly six hundred thousand done on 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 sun on Saturday um yeah we we really are on the way
1: i think yeah i I could find it quite heartening that we we've actually got some good news for once in this pandemic those daily vaccine update uh, numbers updates that we we get on twitter from uh, our wonderful friend hugo guy and and plenty of others it's it's something that i actually look forward to because instead of you know yet another screw up from the the public health authorities and from nhs or um from public health, think we're actually seeing the country do something right for once and um We've also seen recently, I believe, yet another win for our, our Worth a Shot paper. So good job, Matthew and uh, and Jonathan on the mobile vaccination units. I, I saw a, a wonderful uh, wonderful bus going, I believe it was it maybe Crawley, I think it was. I saw this on Twitter somewhere. So we're, we're taking the right steps. Um, and by right, I mean the ones recommended by the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, of course, the two are completely synonymous. And we're actually... We're actually getting somewhere for once. It's fantastic news.
0: It, it seems like as well, kind of moving on to what became the, the drama next week, the contrast couldn't be bigger with the EU. Uh, it's worth pro- noting that um, the EU was very boastful back in October. Um, you still a line, who's the, the president of the European Commission, uh, claimed that they had access to the most promising vaccines and that it was going to be a European success story, but it hasn't ended up that way at all, has it, Jonathan?
2: No, it's uh, not not gone terribly well for them they the, the EU spent longer ordering vaccines um, they they order they didn't order as many different sorts as well so in the UK we've managed, we've already approved um uh AstraZeneca and Pfizer uh the EU didn't approve AstraZeneca they didn't buy a huge amount of it initially um but it's not just so the the UK a couple of days ago we got we got news that Novavax um which has a plant in Teesside uh, has got extremely good efficacy data. Well, that's another one that the UK has bought. We bought a, a larger sort of basket of, of vaccines, um, partially because I think when the vaccine, vaccine ta- task force was looking at it, they were thinking some of these are going to fail. Um, thankfully, I, unless we bought the Saphoni vaccine, which is a French, which is a French vaccine, which um, the EU um, put quite a quite a bit of stock in. Uh, Unless we bought that, I don't think we did. Uh, We've actually done very well in in buying a diverse group of vaccines.
0: It it has been a fascinating story of perhaps uh, very much proving the priors for for Brexiteers because you had the situation where uh, it seems like Some of the kind of key European countries, Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands, um, were pretty close to signing a deal with AstraZeneca for doses last June. But then that whole process got taken over by the commission. And it just seemed like the very centralized process was much slower because you had to get sign-off from 27 different countries. They had different priorities in terms of the technologies they wanted, the cost they were willing to pay. Um, The EU very much treated it. Like potentially a more traditional um, procurement process. We're just trying to push down prices. But uh, really, when there's a global pandemic going on that's extremely expensive, the priority is to do things quickly. It didn't seem like that was the EU's approach. And now we've ended up in a situation where Just Spiegel, uh, not exactly a a magazine, a a major German weekly news magazine that's at all critical of the EU project, but has declared that um, Europe is facing a vaccine disaster in their latest edition. Um, and then consequently to that, we've seen this kind of extraordinary pressure put on AstraZeneca, in fairness, after they um, haven't necessarily been that successful in, in providing the doses they promised the EU. But of course, that's partly the EU's fault as well at the same time, because uh, the EU was later to order. They put all these requirements that the vaccines had to be produced in these EU factories. It's in the EU factories that um, production hasn't quite matched up to spec. And then if you kind of look into the contracts, the contracts usually say something like, we're going to put in our best efforts to deliver it. Um, is the EU right, though, to be a little bit annoyed with AstraZeneca, though, potentially?
2: I don't th- well I mean they they can be annoyed um it's just whether it's reasonable I I don't think so so the specific production problems that they had in the plant in uh, in in Belgium uh as far as I'm aware if they had have ordered them earlier there's more time to sort the production problems you effectively have these massive vats in which you grow the vaccine um and they haven't been the yield hasn't been quite as good as it, as it has been in the in the UK plant Um, And if you move faster, you've got more time to fix these things. Um, In the first week of January, the the EU hadn't even ordered enough vaccines for the whole population. They'd only ordered about two hundred eighty million vaccines um, of Pfizer and Moderna, which were the ones that were approved and working. um, Which is only one hundred and forty million people, one hundred and forty million people fully dosed up out of a population of four hundred and fifty million. It's yeah, it's pretty. It's not. It's it's what what you were talking about in terms of they they really were going for price. Um, it's a real. It's a. I think vaccine economics is a really interesting thing because it's it, a lot of it is very much if you spend more money now, you save a lot more money in the in the in the future. Um, the European Commission isn't, of course, responsible for things like uh, direct support for individuals, but they are responsible for for the vaccine procurement. Um, you know, in the UK, furlough costs absolutely staggering amounts of money. So if you're prepared to spend a bit more on vaccines, um, and you might be spending more um, per dose than other countries, but actually, if you're able to end lockdown and actually and vaccinate the country faster, it costs less in total. Um, I mean, what it, I think it's really, um, really interesting. You're now getting individual countries potentially going off and buying different vaccines. Uh, Hungary is I think ordering Sinopharm, which is the Chinese vaccine, and uh, the Russian uh, president, uh, the, Rus- the Russian government's been talking about providing uh, the Sputnik vaccine to European countries um, who don't have access through the through the shared procurement scheme to to as m- many vaccines as they want. Uh, it's not, yeah, not not gone particularly
1: well in the EU. It's a bit of a embarrassment. For, for the EU, just in terms of prestige as well, when you've got countries in the bloc ordering from um, the kind of geopolitical, uh, uh, not, not not enemies, but, but kind of uh, opposition, should we say, competitors. In, in Russia. And China. Yeah, competitors. We'll, we'll go with that, much more uh, neutral language. I, I find it really interesting here just to think about the counterfactual if the UK hadn't left the EU and what sort of situation we'd be in here. Because we'd be beholden to exactly the same problems. Would we have ended up trying to procure uh, enough vaccine doses from Russia or China? Probably not, I imagine. I think that our international relations with our, our competitors, as we've just said, are not such as uh, as perhaps some of the other EU bloc countries are able to do so. So it is this kind of, I mean, and, and people have tried to resist uh, making this um, something to, to a stick to bash the EU with. But I think in this case, it, It's pretty justified. It is this, as you say, Matthew, this perfect example of how um, kind of slow bureaucratic um, processes uh, have have led to something that's that's ultimately a bit of a disaster, both in public health terms and also international prestige terms.
0: Perhaps Brussels will learn one day that not everything needs to be done in a more centralised, more pan-European manner, and some things are left-best to to more competent national governments. Um, What was interesting, though, in terms of the EU's approach here, you think that they could unite um, against potentially AstraZeneca and and create some anger about the UK. But, of of course, that all very much backfired when they started flagging the idea of using the Northern Irish um, protocol, uh, Article 16, as it's now been pointed to, Um, in order to restrict trade, in order to reduce the risk of vaccines leaving the EU um, without permission, and also introducing this uh, vaccine-related export declaration, which is kind of a a prelude to restricting exports. Now, it's kind of ironic for the EU that claims to be this global trading, open, anti-Trumpite, anti-protectionist bloc. When push comes to shove, they act in this extremely self-centred way and then, of course, do it. Uh, completely wrong, which is that they don't actually bring their own member states along with them. And apparently Ireland found out from social media that potentially that the EU was going to require the, the placing of some kind of border checks between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. So it ended up being an absolute political disaster. Of course, they had to withdraw that particular part of it. Um, it just seemed like there was all crisis stations at the European Commission once they realised they were getting criticised for not actually having enough vaccines. They needed to find a scapegoat and then the scapegoat didn't quite work out.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, the, the particularly interesting thing about trying to scapegoat AstraZeneca at the time was the EU hadn't even approved it. They were, they were having a go at AstraZeneca. They vaccine. were saying it didn't work very well as well. Of course,
0: there was this report in, in the German media that ended up being completely false, that it would only work in 8% of people over, on, over the age of 65 when, in fact, somebody had misread a table because, that in fact, it was 8% of the sample, the, the amount of people in the survey on the 8% were around the age of 65.
1: Incidentally, I wonder whether the journalist that wrote that story is still in their job or not. I haven't checked up recently, but that's something that, uh, not, not that we're fans of cancel culture, of course, at the ASI, but spreading some dangerous misinformation about vaccine efficacy is is probably up there with things that would make me a little bit more sympathetic to uh, a certain well, you, journalist.
2: Perhaps we're taking a very UK, we're taking a very UK centric view of, of what that particular misinformation could do. But the UK, the, the Astra, Oxford Astrazeneca vaccine isn't just being produced and and given in the UK. It's also being being given in in, in India, which has a huge problem with misinformation, uh, particularly among WhatsApp groups. And I I really don't think they were thinking very hard at all when they said, oh, it's only got 8% efficacy. If you if, if that gets picked up in India and starts to fly through WhatsApp groups, that could potentially be extremely damaging.
0: And of course, it's one of the main vaccines that India's producing in huge scale, of course. Um, so it's being produced in Australia at quite large scale. And even another element that was um, front page news in Australia last week as well about the EU export ban because some of the, the Pfizer vaccines um, that are being exported from the EU were coming to Australia. And it's also that uh, Pfizer um, plant in Belgium that's providing vaccines to Canada and Israel and lots of different countries. <laughs> I don't think they quite realised when they were trying to send a signal to AstraZeneca in the UK that the, the potential global implications. But I, I suppose that kind of brings me to the last Thought on this particular topic, which is, um, as you've said, the UK's done very well in procurement. There's something like over 400 million doses on order and it seems like a lot of them are coming good, more than you would expect. So this kind of puts the UK in, in a pretty good position where um, it might have an opportunity to start offering vaccines to other countries. Um, should the UK offer vaccines to um, either other developed countries, let's say Ireland as a neighbour in, in, um, in the same zone, uh, or in Europe or developing countries once the most vulnerable are vaccinated or should the first priority be to vaccinate everyone in the UK first? Jonathan, why don't I go to you with that? And, and Daniel, interested in your kind of utilitarian thoughts on that as well.
2: So I think, um, so, we, so Sam Bowman is actually in the financial Times today, formerly of this, uh, of this parish, uh, talking about a common immunity area with, um, with Ireland. Uh, so effectively drawing a border around the British Isles and, um, and quarantining people coming in from the outside. I think if we were to do that, that's probably a good use of vaccines. Um, uh, I I think, I mean, the, the Irish population is only about 5 million, so it wouldn't be a huge stretch on our, our resources. If they are going to quarantine rivals and we are going to, you know, draw up a, um, draw up a, <clears throat> draw up a common external border uh, for the time being, I think that's probably a good idea. At the end of the day, we bought, you know, Multiple times more. I think we bought over 400 million vaccines. Um, we were all. I think the plan was always that we were going to um, give some vaccines away to different countries. I think Ireland is a natural place to start, but also other countries that are that are struggling. Um, I, I think it's a good idea. I think it was always the plan. If you buy so so many, you're always going to want to give some away.
0: But, but Daniel, should we be doing that right away? Once the I guess top four groups in the UK are vaccinated. Uh, or should the UK say these are our doses and we should vaccinate and to the point where we have herd immunity uh, before we try to be generous to people around?
1: I think there's, you know, you mentioned we, we had a, a good chat about me being a bit of a soulless utilitarian on the podcast last week. I think there is a case for extending it, not just um, beyond Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, but, but also further afield as well. I'm not usually someone who agrees with the the world health organization but this is something i think that they got right when they recently recommended it. um they said that it was kind of the morally right thing to do um and, but also the economically right thing to do uh, a lot of their language trying to justify this was based around kind of equality and fairness i don't think that's really the prism to look at this through it's to see well you know how can you most effectively save the most lives um and i think that once you've kind of got through priority groups and once you've got through um the most vulnerable then the way that you save most lives around the world certainly at least uh, is is through um looking to to export or extend your vaccine supplies. So I,
2: I I do I do disagree with you on the timing Dan. Um I think we the eventual plan is to give the vaccines away. It's extremely difficult to get the government to do anything. And if it is if it continues to have this sort of very very good success vaccinating in the UK at very high levels I think we should probably continue to do that at very least until we're in the sort of mid forties age groups, when we really have got the most, you know, not just the absolute most vulnerable, but but significant parts, parts of the population, which also have a higher vulnerability. Um, it, 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 it mainly affects people by by age after all. I don't think we can necessarily guarantee that other other governments are going to be as good at uh, the vaccine distribution. Um, You know, France only vaccinated four and a half thousand people on Sunday. I don't think it's a good idea once we get as soon as we get past the fourteen million or so really vulnerable people in the UK to start sending vaccines abroad immediately. I think we should be sending vaccines abroad once we've done a lot, lot more more about twenty five to thirty million people in the UK. Um, Once we've done that, and if we were if we were to include Ireland in the common external uh, uh, common external border. Um, I think we should have Ireland in our, in our same groups so their vulnerable get vaccinated at the same time as ours do. Um, but otherwise, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with uh, sending vaccines abroad as soon as our vulnerable are done.
0: Well, perhaps we'll be sending over the British finest to, to vaccinate our French cousins in, in no time, um, as long as, of course, every single dose has a big Union Jack uh, painted on the front to, to keep um, our colleague Matt Kilcoin happy. Um, and you Cuban that... doctors, <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. I think it's time to move on to our next exciting topic: all the stock market instability.
1: So hedge funds and Reddit, short selling, then short squeeze, and the young Republicans occupying Wall Street. It's an interesting time at the moment, and the GameStop saga has caused quite a financial and political stir. Matthew, I guess, just to start off, what is GameStop um, and what happened last week on Wall Street that's getting people so excited?
0: Well, there is a lot going on that's getting everyone excited. I was actually sitting in a, in a cafe in Australia, which in itself, I realize is quite a unique experience. And, of course, the conversation I was hearing every detail about was nothing other than GameStop. So it's, it's definitely um, stopped the world, to, to coin a phrase. I mean, so GameStop is a <laughs> – sorry, excuse the pun. Uh, so, so GameStop is a games retailer, sells um, video games, video game consoles, all that kind of shebang – um the general kind of position amongst a lot of uh, market analysts was that GameStop was not a company with a particularly bright future, um, both as a result of the pandemic, but also the fact that increasingly gamers are purchasing their games online. Now, that led to what um, in the market was a whole lot of short selling of the stock, uh, which is kind of a complex back and forth way to try to... Um, put a bet against a company. Um, So rather than trying to buy a company and and holding the company and hoping the stock goes up, when you do a short sell, um, you do this complex mechanism where um, you loan some shares from somebody, you then sell those shares and then hope to buy them back at a lower price in future and then pocket the difference. Um, And at the same time, there's always a risk when you do a short sell that the stock price goes up. And then when you take give back the shares to the person you've loaned it from, um, when you buy back the shares, they've gone up. Um, what happened, though, was quite a, essentially quite a unique situation where rather than something kind of information changing the market, which pushed up the, the price of game GameStop for some more um, tradition, well, traditional reason, you had the situation where a bunch of Redditors, people on an internet forum, um, are Wall Street bets, um, basically made a, a collective decision as retail investors to pile into the stock, um, both on the basis that they thought the stock was of a high value, but also the idea that um, they wanted to cause a bit of mayhem for all the short sellers, all these people who had taken out these multi billion dollar bets that GameStop would potentially. Go down, And GameStop was over 100% short sold, which means people had um, bought a lot of GameStop or, and then sold it and agreed that they'd play this thing where they'd expect it to go down. But as a result of all these people buying into GameStop, the, the value of GameStop went up massively, which caused a huge problem for all these short sellers. Um, and though it's gone down a bit subsequently and there's there's been a little bit more drama um, that, that we can get into in a moment. GameStop is now a extremely highly valued company on the stock exchange, um, purely basically as a result of what started on a Reddit forum uh, rather than anything else. And that's kind of potentially made a lot of people on Reddit very wealthy uh, and lost hedge funders quite a lot of money.
1: Uh, Is is GameStop... Though not just becoming a a classic sort of bubble now, it's a a, a dot-com bubble for 2021 that when it does burst, it will lead to a lot of normal people losing their money. Is it just a meme stock, Johnny, or is it something a little bit more than that? Well, I...
2: uh... So the interesting thing about GameStop is that I think actually the Redditors were were actually right. Um it probably was undervalued. I mean when the when the um when Wall Street Bats started talking about GameStop in the middle of last year, GameStop was trading at about four dollars a share. Um and the case for GameStop was that they'd they were cutting costs massively, they had new management, they had new directors, they were refinancing. And effectively, the bet was that they had at least another like console cycle. Okay, so they probably had a few more years before everybody moved to b- purchasing games online. And therefore, GameStop was was undervalued. Um, I think that case was probably right, and then it sort of has transformed into this um, this this case where you have, you know. People very aggressively betting against the short selling and making a lot, a lot of money. One of the big posters who are, we can't quite repeat the whole name, but his name is Deep Effing Value. Um, I think has made twenty-two million dollars off of this. So some some redditors have become extremely wealthy. Um, I mean, so it may it may be, but the that the actual GameStop stock now is slightly overvalued. Um, but the people who've mainly lost money have been hedge funds so i'm not sure it it's classed as a as a as a whole bubble because i'm not sure it's going to inflate the rest of the stock market um just by gamestop um uh increasing um there will be undoubtedly some some people who lose money because they buy at the peak but the uh, the, the vast majority of the of the redditors at least seem to have made a lot of money
1: yeah and we we've, we've seen um hedge fund analysts complaining on the airwaves um Quite quite regularly, as a result of this saga, and complaining specifically about the market instability and, and um, day traders taking it to the the short sellers. Do you think that they have a point? Uh, are we neoliberals to sympathise with the the hedge funds uh, the hedge funds here, or, or actually are they just complaining about something that's just a natural market process?
0: Well, well, I think it's important to note that stock doesn't really have like an intrinsic inherent value. Um, that the value of stock is, quite frankly, whatever somebody's willing to pay for it and whatever they perceive it to be worth. And that's what decides um, the, its price in the market. And it happens to be that a lot of people wanted to buy it. And um, I, I think the hedge funders uh, look quite moronic. Um, and even though I, I don't think this is really all hedge funds, I think there there's, was a particular kind of loud subset of hedge funders who um, had put a lot into um, shorting GameStop and they were very annoyed naturally when they lost money on it and then started screaming um, "Hail Mary" as, as a result. Um, quite frankly, I think this is the, this is something to accept. that can happen. I mean, there's this the idea of what was happening on Reddit, the, the images for it in terms of. Um, it coming from an online forum is unique, but the idea of a short squeeze is not. Because actually what tends to happen here, and part of the reason why the value of the stock went up so much, wasn't just because of the retail investors, it would have started that way, but then there would have actually also been some serious uh, you know, full-time Wall Street traders who saw what was going on and they piled in as well. And then what also happens in a short squeeze, and the Redditors were very aware of this, is that um, when you have that situation, as I was describing earlier, where someone has got a short out on a stock and they're hoping the price will go down. If the price starts going up, um, there's a, a strong impetus on them to get out um, early by buying the stock in order to return the stock before it goes any higher. But when they these hedge funders who are short selling re-enter the market to buy the stock in order to exit their short, in order to not lose any more money, they're also pushing up the price, price again. So that's the kind of short squeeze phenomenon. Is it, It's kind of a self perpetuating situation. And that's what can happen if somebody has um, decided to make this kind of shorting decision. I think on the one hand, we've seen all this talk about limiting retail traders, and then you've got this traditional idea that something is inherently wrong and evil about short selling. There's nothing bad about short selling either. I mean, short selling is kind of an important process in the market. It's In order to have full information about the value of a stock, you need to be able to both um, bet on the stock by putting a value in buying the stock, but also be able to bet against a stock by doing the short selling process. So it actually helps discover what are good and bad companies. Um, and often short selling is done for quite good market reasons, which is that people believe there's either some fraudulent activity going on in a company, like happened in the, the Wirecard scandal, um, or otherwise... Uh, it's also possible that people just think the value of the share is, is lower than it is today for whatever kind of natural reason of it. Um, and also short selling has a few other advantages, particularly during a crisis. It's a good way to put liquidity in the market as as well um, and a good way for somebody who's running a large portfolio to hedge against different risks. Um, because if the stock market is going down, you've got to remember the kind of people who actually ultimately um, – own the money, which hedge funds are using are usually kind of pension funds or investment funds or infrastructure funds, you know, some kind of um, other owner of the money, is these funds need to be able to balance their different risks. And sometimes being able to bet against the market is as important as being able to bet in favor of the market. So I've got nothing inherently wrong with short selling. I've got nothing inherently wrong with what the Redders are doing. I think they're they're both, you know, playing the game.
2: Wall Street bets is... is- it is a genuinely interesting internet forum because uh, a lot of the, I mean, they've almost they I think they've more than doubled the user base. Um, but it was a, it was a place at least until a couple of weeks ago where you could go and you could get really quite interesting analysis on very odd stocks um, that you just otherwise really wouldn't see. Um, and you get people who have quite. I mean, it's a it's sort of in a way like Twitter where it's a, very much a crowdsourced expertise and that you would get some really really interesting thoughtful um bets made you know people going into companies that they understood a lot about and also willing to share their their experience and and share their reasoning i think it's uh i think it's yeah it's it's an interesting forum um whether it sort of remains that way whether it sort of gets taken over now by people who are uh, you know deliberately trying to sell stuff is remains i think it remains to be seen
1: Yeah, the the other worry is that it gets kind of taken over by an influx of people who who are viewing this whole GameStop affair as part of a wider political movement or a kind of new class war. And we've seen uh, the the week ending um, with young Republicans of all people occupying Wall Street and claiming that the game is rigged against ordinary people. Um, Obviously, you know, that they aren't familiar, perhaps, with the, the nuances of the efficient markets hypothesis that... Uh, Matthew Lash, you just referenced <laughs> there. Have we seen? Would you say a, a kind of reversal in the in the populist mantle here, where we're seeing young Republicans uh, occupying Wall Street? Something has gone horribly wrong, has it not?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's like a, a fascinating political moment and quite hilarious in itself. I think that the key complaint here, and this is something that AOC and um, Ted Cruz and, and all different kind of politicians raised concern about, which is the fact that um, the major app that, that people were using, these retail investors, something called Robinhood, which allows you to very easily invest on the market, to buy fractions of shares, to do all these kind of um, very simple, easy, cheap trading. Um, they restricted your ability to buy GameStop Um, And that was seen as a form of market manipulation by the app. And then there were all these conspiracy theories around about Robin Hood's connections to um, the people who were shorting GameStop and whether or not something bigger was going on there. Now, what subsequently emerged is um, basically, and it's kind of some complex um, regulatory um, pressures on the companies that mean as a result of some of the Dodd-Frank regulations that they felt a need to suspend the trading just because there was such a high frequency of trades going on. Um, and they have to post collateral to cover their clients' trading and the, the whole bunch of different issues that, that came up as a result of the situation. So ironically, it wasn't a Wall Street conspiracy, but it was existing kind of market regulation, which ended up helping the incumbents, in this case, the hedge funds, um allow the kind of GameStop price to to fall a bit um, and and take pressure off the market in this sense. Um, But I think the the politics of it seems to have been the kind of outcome here where people now have this kind of perception about how the system is rigged against um, retail investors. And in some ways, you probably could argue that it is. The the regulatory system's designed for the big players, not the retail investors. Um, And there's perhaps ways to fix that by fixing the regulation. Um, But at the same time, it doesn't seem like that's particularly well... Um, conceptualized as as what needs to be done next
2: yeah it wasn't just actually um robin hood um there are, a, there are a few apps and services in the uk so there's trading 2 on 2 and there's free trade uh and they also suspended uh, buying um i think free trade actually suspended like all wholesale buying because they had uh similar problems with uh with deposits and and clearing
1: uh, and we've now started to see the same thing happening again with silver has continued to surge in price and it was briefly trading over $30 per ounce um, earlier today, I believe. So reaching uh, uh, yesterday, rather reaching an eight year high. Uh, is, is this whole affair starting to undermine the case for short selling? It seems to be in the news a fair bit or actually does the, the kind of efficient market hypothesis um, justification here hold pretty firm?
2: I think it. I think it probably holds pretty pretty firm. Um, If people are buying silver as a part of a a a, a political movement, um, I'm not sure that that impacts too much on the on the stock markets um, market processes. The silver thing. The silver thing is interesting because we saw uh, people trying. You know, people massively getting into silver and gold uh, around about the last time of the last um, financial crisis. So it wouldn't surprise me if the same people who are who are pushing um, You Need to Buy Silver um, have also been pushing it previously.
1: I think it's probably time to move on to our final topic for the podcast, which is, of course, super forecasting.
0: Former number 10 advisor Dominic Cummings brought the idea of super forecasters into British public life last year. But is this just witchcraft or a serious way to analyze the world? Well, of course, our special guest today, Jonathan, is well-placed to answer these questions as a formerly qualified, newly ranked super forecaster at Good Judgment Inc. Um, so Jonathan, let's, let's get back to the basics here. What actually is super forecasting?
2: So super forecasting is uh, the term given by a, uh, an American academic called Philip Tetlock to a, um, a group of people who are extremely good at generating probabilistic forecasts. So initially the good judgement project was a, a crowdsourced prediction market where you get a few thousand people together to answer questions relating to political and relating to political and economic issues for instance who's going to be the next prime minister of japan so you'd get people together you'd ask them who they're going to think it is and the super forecasters were the people who tended to be right on average more than more than other people and there was about 2% of people who were exceptionally good at this. So there were about 70 to 80% accurate on any given question.
0: And does that you, is that, that means you are one of those people who are extremely good at it in the, in the top 2% and therefore that makes you a, a winner of, of the game uh, um, that is super forecasting.
2: Yeah. So I'm, I am a super forecaster. I qualified in, in January. I'd spent Two years um, forecasting on just on Good Judgment Open, which is the open platform, uh, over two hundred questions. So I sat down, I researched these questions, and turns out I'm. If you ask me, a, a, you know, generally, generally, I'm pretty accurate at predicting what's going to happen.
0: Well, I'm going to start asking you for my election betting tip soon. What are the kind of techniques um, that that Tetlock talks about to, to try to? achieve a good forecasting?
2: So the first thing you should try and do, and, and the reason that the, the platform is so useful is you should try and keep score because remembering how you did something before is, you know, if you if you were good at it, then you want to try and replicate that again. So keeping score is, is very important um, because people are very prone to rewriting what they thought. Uh, a few months ago, a really good example, we were talking about vaccines earlier, um, the Independent reported that there was uh, a source in Whitehall saying that uh, everybody thought the vaccine program, this is in October, by the way, was a complete joke. And they were just in sort of indulging Matt Hancock, who was the only person in the, in the British cabinet who was taking the idea that vaccines would be approved seriously. Now, when you ask these same people a few months later, well, what did you think of the vaccine? Many people are, you know, what do you think, uh, when do you think vaccines are going to be approved? Many people will just turn around and say, I thought, oh, I always thought vaccines were going to be approved. Um, keeping score of what you actually thought is, is really important to that. Um, another, another, probably one of the most important, another one of the most important things is, is being able to identify base rate. So that's simply the amount of time that an event occurs. So if you uh, are asked, for instance, about vaccines, when will a vaccine be approved in the UK? what you might want to do is go back and look how often how long it takes for vaccines to be approved now what probably happened in most people's forecasts when they were when they were talking about this is they actually took the base rate too seriously because they it takes a long time to approve vaccines um number one because you need to get funding so that takes a long time and number two you actually need enough cases to to generate the data um what what, what super forecasters very good at doing is is Okay, I've identified the base rate, let's say, in this particular scenario, it's more than the um, eight, well, seven or so months it took to develop a a vaccine. Um, But then you you update it. So you go out and you research it. Um, You ask out there questions. uh, How is this different? Um, What specific steps are being taken to make it different? And if you if you identify that, OK, well, it needs to be funding is like a major component of how long it takes to get a vaccine approved. Funding is solved. Governments are throwing hundreds of millions of pounds or billions of pounds at, at vaccine approval. OK, that's great. And number two, it's a pandemic. So there are loads and loads of cases where, it, you know, unfortunately, there are loads of cases where you can test uh, potential vaccines. Um, so if you identify base rates, you you are able to sort of get an outside view and then you shift to what's called an inside view, uh, trying to identify how this specific case or this specific question is different
1: uh, just a, a kind of a slightly odd question, but it will make sense in a moment. Are most super forecasters extremely rich because <laughs> the the kind of implication seems to be that well if, if you're very accurate at predicting future events, you can therefore bet on them whether that's uh, predicting say. The stock market prices, uh, perhaps GameStop w- was predicted by by some super forecasters, um, or or election betting, as, as Matthew mentioned earlier. Are there certain topics that just aren't appropriate for the sort of super forecasting techniques that you've been discussing?
2: Well, I'm English, so I've never asked my fellow super forecasters um, <laughs> if uh, about their financial situation. Um, I. Uh, i i mean you don't have to be a qualified super forecaster to, to identify you know to, to identify and use some of these techniques um, you I, I suspect probably a lot of the people who've been very successful in business and um, probably do use some of these techniques perhaps they aren't explicit i i don't personally bet very much so i i wouldn't want to really i i, I have a I, i'm not i'm not too i'm not it, it I'm not too confident in in, in betting, I, but that's my upbringing.
1: So it, it's interesting in the sense that the, the kind of the, the Brier score that's used to measure the success for for super forecasting. I can see you know betting returns as as a fairly successful accountability mechanism for the success or failure of forecasting as well. Is this just kind of a would you say more of a, a cultural thing that that people who identify as or are involved in the super forecasting uh, cultural sphere tend to be more about uh, the kind of the value of information itself and that's focused on betting or maybe it's a, a side project it's, it's just something that's always really interested me because there seems to be some overlap so for,
2: so for me personally it's it's a little it's a little bit of a cultural thing My like my parents are very uh, anti betting which is why I've never really uh, indulged in it and um, uh-huh. I, I think some of the the incentives are, are, are interesting, right? Because they are they are fundamentally different. Because the point of ba- making the point of making bets is to is to make money. It's not necessarily to be to be right about the outcome, right? There's a slight bit more. There's a slight bit more nuance in what you're actually trying to do as a bet, right? You are trying at the end of the day to win money. Um, whereas in forecast, you know, pure. Um, I don't mean the word pure in a in a sort of good or morally morally good sense. I just mean in just terms of finding out the correct answer. You are it, it's a slightly different shade. So if you're betting, you're going to be more, potentially more likely to take risks on can this make me money. Whereas if you're forecasting, your your risk is going to be how wrong am I prepared? You know, you know how much am I prepared to risk being wrong?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's one of these fascinating things about super forecasting, which is it's very much reputation. Based. And it kind of, when I first came across Tetlot's work, it was uh, from a study that he did over 20 years about the ability of of experts and subject matter experts and their capacity to um, correctly make predictions about their areas of expertise. Um, And he found a 20 year study of 284 experts and that they were no better at predicting the future than anyone else. Um, And it seems like the What's, and we even were talking about this earlier in terms of was there a journalist sacked for um, printing an article saying that AstraZeneca had a low um, effectiveness rate amongst over 65s? Um, are journalists or commentators ever sacked for the fact that they get their predictions wrong? And the answer to that is almost always no, because there's very little accountability normally in public debate for people's predictions, that no one really writes them down and specific. Um, quantifiable ways and, and answer specific questions, and then no one looks back and holds them to account for things they're saying. And that seems to be what's really different about super forecasting. It's not necessarily skinning the game financially, but it's certainly skinning the game reputationally.
2: Mm. I mean, the, the two interesting things there is that a lot of, pe- a lot of people who do forecast do so anonymously, um, which is... Uh, which is interesting because you 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 don't so you because you can co- kind of put aside that reputational loss right you don't have to worry too much about your about your reputation if you're doing it wrong your 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 particular anonymous accountant has a reputation because you're you're tracked by a career score um but that's not that doesn't um but but being able being able to put your reputation aside so you can get you know, very honest feedback, I think you're wrong. Um and also, you know, you can wade into something which you might have no particular expertise on and, and give your give you speak your mind. Also, it's 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 really it's psychologically uncomfortable, I think, to to say, I think this. Because nobody likes being wrong. And nobody likes being wrong in writing, in particular. <laughs> it's it's really difficult. You know, one of the one of the one of the interesting things you can ask people who are really into forecasting, which most people don't have an answer to is, well, what's the last thing you were wrong about? Right? Yeah. That's like, you know, what's Dan, Matt, what's the last thing you, what's the last thing you were wrong about that you, that you Uh, wrote down and made a prediction about?
0: I'm of course, never wrong about anything at any time. Of course, I can't can't comprehend uh, this question to be honest. I don't understand.
1: For me, it was thinking that dropping at the air traffic control tower in Call of Duty Warzone was a good play last night. That was the last one <laughs> I was a Very important prediction that, that, that made all the difference, and uh, I'm happy to be held accountable for it.
2: But on a slightly more serious note, um, writing down your predictions and why you've specifically you were wrong is, is, is uncomfortable, but it's necessary to improve. And it's a different feedback mechanism than betting, whereby the, it's just money. Um, you know, money matters a huge amount, but going through and it, exactly what you th- what what you think and why you thought it is uh, is something I think that is unusual about people who are very interested in forecasting and that they're able to do this and do it regularly. Um, I mean, I've uh, one of the forecasts, So I've been forecasting on coronavirus since January last year. One of the things I was almost certain I was I'd have put it at like almost ninety percent was that the UK would have shut its borders right i i was i was i was like oh of course of course i'll do this because other countries are doing it and of course we we didn't that was my i think my big thing that, that i got wrong in 2020 um uh, you know my of uh, my uh, the many forecasts i made um i think i'm i think i'm still in the top 10 on the open platform for forecasting coronavirus um my go-to, my specific go-to on on the question I was most wrong about was forecasting how much money the Joker movie would make, which is an excellent film. You should see it. Um, <laughs> where I got, uh, I, I had a very bad theory about what about people about um, why it wouldn't make any money because um, I thought, oh, well, this is a film I'm interested in. I think this is going to be really interesting, and I like it a lot. Therefore, other people won't like it. So I got I got hooked on this inside view um, that was ultimately very bad. And if I'd have stepped back a bit and gone, oh, well, the director made the hangover. He made a lot of money there. Um, you know, the access themselves are very good. Um, I might have done better on that forecast. But that's one of the forecasts I got particularly wrong.
1: Yeah, almost uh, to exercising too much humility there. I think, Johnny, that's a, that's a great, great example there of something you've got. Particularly well, you, wrong.
2: I think you do have to be humble. I think you have to be very uh, honest with yourself and be willing to say, oh, I got that wrong. Um, and it's not that you don't care about being wrong. You know, it, it irritates me. Either. It still irritates me. I was so wrong about the Joker uh, film, not making as much money. Um, but it, you, you have to be willing to say, I, I was wrong and I want to be better. And here is how I do it.
1: And you highlighted one of the things here, the, the kind of difference between putting your reputation on the line versus just having money on the line in terms of skin in the game. One of the examples that pops to mind that kind of combines both is this phenomenon of uh, people on Twitter challenging each other to bet on their particular policy predictions. And I wish that this this practice was more common because, I mean, as much as it's kind of a, a flex on the person you're challenging to, to bet, uh, the, the kind of initiator of, of twitter bets on say will the child poverty rate go up or down in the next 2 or 3 years or something it's actually a really good way of of keeping people accountable sure there, there's money on the line but the money's not really what's at stake here it's usually for for trivial amounts and actually it's more of a kind of challenge you know are you willing to stake your reputation on this prediction so there there's some kind of amateur uh, super forecasting perhaps that that's going on 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 Twitter and that well, it's,
2: It it's for, it's forecasting um, and i I do I, yeah I, I think that that is you, you are right it's more of a it, it is more of a reputational bet um one of the one thing I have seen I've seen it in the online magazine Unheard. I think um, Saloni detani who's a phd student at King's college she wrote uh, an article about forecasting vaccines and she put at the end of at uh, the end of her article this is what she thinks. In probabilistic terms, I'd really like to see that more often. Um, if this event happens, and you know the the, the percentages of, of you know what people actually think is going to happen, um, and it, you know some of it, I think is headline writing is is designed to be as attractive as possible and draw people in, um, but then that doesn't necessarily mean what you're reading is is good.
0: Um... I'm I'm kind of just on a last thought here beyond the. Intellectual benefits from what you're talking about, and and using it as a kind of personal tool to it to improve your ability to understand the world, and um, something that it was kind of framed around Dominic Cummings was this idea that it could potentially be quite helpful in government and in policy making. Um, w- would you support uh, super forecasting? Let's say unit within the civil service. I suppose you could say that uh, quite often. Um, analysts particularly from intelligence agencies or from the foreign service are sending cables and trying to make predictions about things that aren't going to happen or are going to happen um, but should that be kind of formalized using the Tetlock method uh, and could, you know, could potentially improve um, the ability of, of governments to respond to unforeseen events let's say COVID or or any kind of future unforeseen events?
2: I think yes but I think it's potentially extremely difficult because a lot of the advice that might be given is probably going to be unhelpful and (laughs) is um, a lot of it so a lot of good advice is dismissed and not listened to Uh, and you would almost need it to be um, you, you would need you would need a very brave prime minister to do it um I would, you know i th- i think it would be very valuable but at the end of the day if your um you know if you're if you if your forecasting team comes to you and says well here's a 20 percent chance that this thing happens and you say all right okay i 20 is too high for me let's take a bunch of steps and it doesn't happen and you've spent you know a lot of money on it it's therefore potentially a you know quite a difficult political problem I think in, in, in however I think for things that you know super forecasting is not this superpower it's ra- rationally thinking about how likely it is something that is to happen and thinking about the consequences of doing something so if you were to uh, so if you if you were to say this is what we think this policy is going to do if we put it into practice and you have a you know, almost a red team of super forecasters saying okay well this is how it's played out in other countries. I think that would be extremely valuable. It would be a brave step, but I think it would be a good one if it was to become institutionalized. you were to actually have people checking uh, independently, um, and you know, you could do it. You could do it. You know, it doesn't have to be completely open. You could do it. Um, you, you know, the. It's not that you're. I, I don't think you'd have to let everybody see what your forecasts are. Do we think this is a good idea or not? I think it would be useful, but it would it would you'd have to be quite brave, and you have to be willing to tolerate a lot of people saying that's not a very good idea, Minister.
1: What we really need here is uh, to install the God King Jonathan Kitson, and that way we'll get around the particular
2: <laughs> absolutely problem. not. That would be no, that would, no, that that would. Uh, I think just just I think just having one person or you know just one team is not going to fix all, all the problems, but. Um, you know, having a little bit more of a rational way of thinking about well, what will this policy do? Uh, and this is not to say that the civil service doesn't do this. You know, I see I, I, there is a lot of good advice that doesn't get listened to. So, um, you know, I think a, if you were if you were to to include or if you were to include for, forecasting and listen to it, that would be very brave and very useful. But you do have to be very brave to do it.
0: I, I think it was also would be important to be quite humble about it as well. And I think you were quite humble earlier uh, in a few of your remarks and making the point that super forecasting is not witchcraft. It's still not certainty. It's just getting slightly better on average over time at making the right predictions about the future. But uh, particularly coming from our kind of liberal philosophical background, if we we go back and read our Hayek, we know that knowledge is dispersed and the knowledge of circumstance to make decisions never exists in a um, centralized way and that's why central planning still fails um, and therefore we shouldn't think we can use super forecasting as a way to pull levers and, and control the world. you could almost potentially go too far and be overconfident with the methodology not to say the methodology isn't helpful but you've got to put all these things within kind of a reasonable context.
2: absolutely I mean if you stick rigidly by base rates and you say okay well there's a one there's a one in 10 chance every year of a, of a pandemic happening right? If you, if you, if you, and you, okay, well, it's only a one in 10 chance. We don't need to worry about it. And then you get some very worrying signs and you don't update. You know, you don't, I, I don't think uh, rule by, rule by pure, just rule by pure knowledge is a, is a particularly good idea.
0: Well, on that very interesting note, I think it's probably time to finish up today's excellent podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASR. You've been listening uh, to my co-host now head of programs, Daniel Pryor. Uh, as well as uh, ASI fellow and super forecaster, Jonathan Kitson. Um, You've been listening to the ASI's uh, Pin Factory podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. We look forward to being in your ears and on your speakers next week once more.